Amen. And you may be seated. Well, this morning we come to our last God-appointed judge of Israel, a man by the name of Samson. For most of you, you're probably pretty familiar with that name. I know many of us growing up, uh, we heard great stories about this guy, right? Great stories of his strength, uh, the fact that he didn't seem to have the ability to choose the right woman. Um, the, uh, of course, we also know even of his humiliating death where he's, he's basically captured by his enemies. He's blinded and he's forced to, like an animal, push, um, push a, a meal. And so it's, it, it's, it's, it's highs and lows for this guy that we're about to study. And, but, but remember something. It's always important for us to remember that each one of these judges serve as a type or a shadow of a coming Messiah that would ultimately come. Of course, we're talking about who? Jesus, right? And so each one, in a different way, teaches us a little bit something about that ultimate Messiah that was to come. And certainly, Samson serves the same role. In some ways, we learn more about, he's more of an accurate picture of what the coming Messiah is going to be like and, and what it's going to be like when he comes, especially uh, around his birth and around his death. Uh, but sometimes, and as we'll see over the next couple of weeks, um, sometimes he's way off. He's, he's nothing like the Savior that we know. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to cover that. We're going to look into that and see what God would teach us about the life of Samson and through his life. But let me say this, this, this morning, um, we're not really going to focus so much on Samson. Instead, what I want to do is I just want to take a couple verses in the beginning of chapter 13. And I really want to kind of set really kind of the environment, if you will, uh, of, of what we're going to see to come. And the way we're going to do it is I really want to take notice of those people that's, that, that, that this man is ultimately going to come to save. We know that God is going to raise up Samson to go and save him, just like he did all the other judges. So I want to get a picture of who are these people who are in such great need of saving. We're going to look at that. And then what I want to do is I want to look at the God who saves. Who is the God who sends the Savior to ultimately save these people? So we want to take a look at the, peop the people and take a look at God. The rest of the weeks, we'll begin to focus a little bit more on Samson. So look, two things we want to look at today. First is this. The people who needed to be saved by Samson were full of sin. The people who needed eventually to be saved by Samson were full of sin. Now, our story begins almost exactly like all the other stories that we've read about so far. It begins the, almost the same way. Look at verse 1. See how familiar this is with you. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Does that sound familiar? It all do because almost his exact same words are found in 2.11.3.7.4.1.6.1.10.6. Now in 13.1 again. So what we find is it's familiar because we've become accustomed to this sinful cycle. Do you remember the sinful cycle that we've talked about? Uh, this sinful cycle where it begins with the people's rebellion against God. And here we see it once again. Again, they're doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And one of the things that we found is whenever step one happens, step two is close behind. What is step two? God's judgment on those sinners. And we see that this story is exactly the same. It plays out like all the other stories. Uh, notice the next part. It says this, So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. So note this. Every time the people sin, God is quick to judge. Did you notice that? There's, there's no exceptions. There's no change. Nothing's changed in the whole story. God is, note this, is faithful to judge sinners. 
Now, that's a little weird to, to hear about that, right? Normally, when we think of God's faithfulness, it's something uplifting and encouraging, right? We think that, hey, God is faithful to sustain us, to help us, to protect us, to provide for us. Yes, God's faithful, but it seems a little weird to say that even though he's faithful in all those things, what we have to understand about our God, about our Jesus, is that he is faithful, just as faithful to take care of us as he is to judge sin and sinners. Strange, but it's true. Now, because of that, and if it's true, and I believe it is, I think the whole book of Judges has been showing that every time, sin, God judges, yes? Now, what's interesting about that whole thing is that if that is the case, and I believe it is, then these people are in big trouble. They're in big trouble because they are saturated with sin, and I think we see it just in the one verse in verse 1. And and let let me unpack it for you. Let me give you a couple ideas. We see that they're saturated in sin, how? Because first, we see in them sin's defiance. We see sin's defiance. Notice the words again when he says that they did evil in the sight of who? Evil in the sight of themselves? Uh, Their neighbors? No, in sight of who? Say it. God. Okay, they did evil in the sight of God. The reason that their sin is so serious and God judges it is because their sin is ultimately a violation against the will of God for their life. So God was their creator. God was their sustainer. He did it all for them. And because of his unique role as creator and sustainer of their life, he has a unique role that he and he alone can determine and dictate what is right and wrong for his people. Would you agree? That's true. I mean, the the, the truth is, if he owns you, if he made you, then guess what? He has all the rights to you to tell you how to live and tell you how not to live. If you agree with that, nod your head. All right. Now, that may, we may agree with that, but there's a whole world in which we live that does not. What I just told you is scathingly obnoxious to the society in which we live. The culture in which we live says this, only you can determine what is right and wrong for you. You can't tell me what's right. You can't tell me what's wrong for me. You got to decide it what ultimately for yourself. This is the same attitude that, quote, God's people had at the time of Samson. Do you, do you see their sin? Uh, another way to put it is this. Back in chapters, or later in chapters 17 and 21, speaking of about the same group of people, okay? Same group of people. Here's what the word of God says. It says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So what they were saying, in essence, is, hey, God, we don't want you to rule over us. We don't recognize you. And in defiance, they say, we're going to live our life whatever way we ultimately want to. They were going to be the deciders of right and wrong of their life. Now, how would they do it? Same way we do it. Whenever we're not submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ, what do we do? We live by feeling. How do you make decisions? Well, what do you feel? I don't know. What do you feel about this? I don't know. Well, let's go how we feel. If I feel good about it, we do it. You don't feel good about it, you don't do it. This is how people are ultimately living their life. And it's not feeling, it's reason. What's the most rational thing to do here? Well, I think we should do this because of X, Y, and Z. So they're using these things to ultimately dictate whether what they should do in life. And God sits there and says, you are incapable. You, because of the sin nature in which you have, in which you, because you were fallen, are incapable of ultimately determining for yourself what is actually true and what is actually false. So here's the idea. We're out of the equation. You and I, hey, good news, you and I are incapable of determining what's right for us. That, isn't that encouraging? So encouraging, right? And so, so we can't determine it, but if not us, then who? We've got to make decisions somehow. Well, how about Congress? How about the government? Allow the government to be able to determine what is right and wrong for us. Certainly, 
they, it appears as though they want to do it. Would you ag- agree that, right? Maybe the experts, I love this. Well, the experts say, I've got a wonderful uncle. I love him to death. He reads so much, probably too much, but he's always telling me what the experts say, all right? Half the time, I got to be honest with you, I really don't care what the experts say. Y- you with me? So is it the experts? Here's what I love as well what people will often bring uh, to really kind of secure, you know, like, like this is truth. They love to talk about the majority. You ever watch a newscast? They love to talk about the majority. The majority of people, 62%, believe, and then they tell you what they believe. The reason that they're so, so, so dogmatic about that is because they believe truth is derived by the majority. If the majority believe it, it's got to be true. Now, you and I know that. That's not true, right? So the more majority believes it doesn't necessarily mean it's true, just like Whatever, if, if the minority doesn't believe, if you're in the minority, doesn't necessarily mean that you are wrong. So what do we do in all this? There's only one, according to the scriptures. One thing that you should know through the book of Judges is this, is that you and I are not capable of ruling over our own lives. We're not capable of doing it. And when we decide to do what's right in our own eyes, we do evil in the sight of the Lord. And when we do that, the Bible says we are full of sin. What is it? It's the sin of defiance. Second thing that we see here, not only do we see in them the sin of defiance, but we also see in them the sin's delusion, sin's delusion. Now, consider that phrase, that those verses 17 and 21 again, where it says they did what was right in their own eyes. That phrase, now catch this, not only shows us that they were rebellious against God and going to do whatever it is that they wanted to do, but it shows us that they actually became delusional in their sin. What it means is they came to the point that they literally begin to call good bad and bad good. So, so, so they're, 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 there's a huge difference. Let me, let me kind of break it down this way. Uh, there are times when you and I do what's wrong. Would you agree? And we feel bad about it. Yes? All right. And, and why do we feel bad? Well, we could say the Holy Spirit is believers convicting us. But, but you know, even lost people feel guilty. Did, did you know that? Really? Yes, yes, they do. Um, That's why it's a funny argument. Whenever I tell people, I say, well, were you saved then? They say, well, I felt guilty about what I was doing. Lost people feel guilty about what they're doing. Do you you understand? It's called a conscience. All right, let me give you a little little Romans teaching here. Romans chapter uh, 2. Romans there, it says, those who are Gentiles who do not have the law know the law. How? Because God has written it on their heart. Now, what he's saying is, it doesn't mean that they're ab- they know absolute truth, but they have an essence, a familiarity of what is right and wrong, just basically. Not perfectly, but basically. In other words, a lost person knows that it's wrong to lie. It's wrong to cheat. It's wrong to murder somebody. Aren't we grateful for that, right? Or we're glad that everybody knows that. Why? Because of their conscience in which God has given each of us, whether you're a believer or whether you're not. Now, what, what happens is this, is that if we, when we begin to sin or we begin to do something's wrong, whether we know the word or not, our conscience is convicting us, we have a choice. Keep moving on and feeling guilty or abandon and remove. And when you remove that, you remove the guilt, the shame, and the pain, right? But what people do when they're trying to drive their own car of their own destiny and do what's right in their own eyes, they're in pain, but they want to continue down the same path. So they continue. What happens when we know? Have you ever been in a place? All right, confession time. Ever been in a place that you knew there was sin in your life, but you just kept on going? Yeah? All of us? We knew it. God had spoken to us. We knew that it was wrong. We just keep going. And what do we do? We begin to lose sleep. Anybody lose sleep because you're, it's, it's in the back of your mind? Sometimes you can even begin become sick. The Bible calls it in Romans 1, suppressing the truth in all unrighteousness. 
That means that we know what is true, either through the word or we know through our God-given conscience, we know what's wrong, but we're suppressing it and suppressing it and suppressing it. Well, guess what? If you just keep suppressing it, you're going to get sick unless you begin to deal with your disobedience in a different way. So what do we begin to do? We begin to do this little magical thing uh, that, that you, you may not be familiar with, but I know it well. It's called rationalization. You begin to rationalize why you're doing what it is that you're ultimately doing. It goes something like this. I know in my heart that what I'm doing is sinful. It's clear in the word and in my conscience and whatever it is that I know. And, but I can't keep feeling guilty about it, and I can't allow other people to condemn me for what I'm ultimately doing. I can't survive that way. So I've got to change my view. So what I have to do is I've got to come up for reasons, really good reasons, of why I'm doing what I know in my heart is wrong to be able to do. This is my life as a biblical counselor. You understand that, right? So what's going on? Leaving my husband. Why? Well, I know, Pastor Mike, it's wrong to leave my spouse. But here's the list, <laughs> right? Here's the list. Here's the reasons why I'm okay to do what the Bible clearly tells me not to do. Are you, are you guys with me on this? We, 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 we sit back, we begin to come up with all these ideas, and the Bible says eventually if you keep going, what you're doing is exactly what condition these people in. You will come to the point where what you at first or at one time thought was wrong and wickedness and disobedience to God, and you will begin to hold that up as actual truth. You believed it was wrong before, you believe it's right now. What is that? It's the delusion of sin. It's the delusion of sin. Uh, we were talking about it with my uncle this, this, this last week. We said, isn't it amazing that a person can get up, all right, and they could sit there and they could be all about pro-choice. That, listen, that a woman should have a right to her own body, and if she has got a, a, a baby inside of her and she doesn't want it there, she should have the right to be able to put that child to death. Now, here's what's interesting. When they say it, here's what, it sounds crazy to us, does it not? But in their minds, because of the delusion of sin, it makes absolute sense. As much of a conviction as you have in your heart that they're wrong, they have all the conviction in their heart and in their mind that they're absolutely right. Now, these are the same people. Here, let's take the delusion a little bit further. Not only do they think it's okay to murder a child, a defenseless child, but the same people will go out and throw your rear end, excuse me, I'm tired, your rear end in jail because you killed an eagle's egg. All right? You killed an eagle's egg. Ten years in prison, buddy. Right? Do you see the delusion of sin? And so let me, let, me, let me just say this. This is the position that these people are in who ultimately need saving. And if you come to a point where you think, where you begin to think that you're an exception to the rule and the laws of God, and you begin to list reasons of why the truth of God doesn't apply to you, you are well on your state of being delusioned by your own sin. Okay? Third thing. Such an uplifting message. Number three. Third, we see in them sin's depth. Okay, we see sin's depth. So we not only see sin's defiance. You get that point against God? I'm going to do my own thing. Next step, and, and it kind of keeps stepping. Keeps, there's a progression or digression here. The next is the delusion. I'm going I'm to keep doing the wrong thing until I begin to think it's the right thing eventually. All right? Now here's the third thing, sin's depth. There's something missing in this cycle. All right, remember the sin cycle? Begins with what? The sin of man? Yes? What's, this, what's step number two? God judging the people by turning them over. Does anybody remember this from the whole book? Okay, do this if you do. If not, just lie and do this, okay? All right, we're good. And then, uh, so what, is, what are we expecting the third step to be? The third step in the cycle is that the people cry out for mercy to God. In every one of these cyclical stories, we've heard them and seen them cry out to God. Now, let's, let's be really honest. 
we've seen and we said that they're not always throwing out. They're, they're not throwing out, calling out in true repentance, are they? Sometimes the only reason they're calling God when they're being oppressed by their enemies is because they want to escape their suffering. And we've all done it. God, help me. We don't really want to have anything to do with you. Really don't want you to be Lord over our life. But we really want you to be able to help us in the midst of our pain and get us out of this. So they're not really repenting. But here something completely is happening. Because, because there's no calling out to God. So there's no calling out to God in true repentance. But there's not even any calling out to God for God to deliver them from the strife and the oppression that they're in. What's, what's, what's going on here? What makes a person be in captivity and in bondage and in slavery for 44 years but never turn to God and say, God, help? Here's the bottom line. You can be in sin so long that you become accustomed, content, and comfortable in sinful bondage. Did you hear that? You be sinning so long, you just think it's a part of life. It doesn't bother you. The sins that used to bother you one time just don't even bother you anymore. This is just life. This is just the way we live. This is just, just normal life that we go along with. We, we, we see this in, verse, in chapter 15 with them. In chapter 15, Samson finally comes and he begins to rescue his people. Yay, Samson! M one of my favorite stories. It's where he takes all the foxes. I think that's plural for fox, foxes. Sounds weird. But anyway, foxes. And he gathers 300 of them begins to tie their tails together, lights them on fire, lets them go through all the Philistines' uh, um, crops, burns them all down. For some reason, that upsets them. And, um, and so, so they come after Samson. And the Israelites kind of intervene. And they're like, hey, man, why, why, why are you so angry? What's going on? And they sit there, and they, and, and they ultimately say to him, they go, hey, listen, this is what he did. He used foxes to burn down our, you know, and of course, I would laugh. He used foxes to burn down? Anyway, it's besides the point. And so he used this. Now, here's their response. They don't rejoice. They become angry at the deliverer. Here's what they say. They say, they go to him and they begin to berate him. And they say, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? They don't think that they have it wrong. They think that Samson has it wrong. They become so used to their sin and so used to the state of unholiness in their life, it becomes comfortable with them. It becomes right to them. And for somebody to object that they need to be able to come and get right with them, they just think that they've ultimately lost their minds. And so here's what we see. Sometimes I'll have, I'll have someone come, and it'll be a brother and sister in Christ. And I've used this illustration before, but this is what happens when, when you don't get any sleep. You use the same illustrations over. So um, here it is. We, we've talked about it. And um, I know you don't remember it last time I said, so I'll give it again. It's a brother or sister of Christ that comes to you, and they'll say something of this nature. They'll say, you need to pray for me. I'm really struggling with sin in my life. I'm really, really struggling. And, uh, and, and, and you begin to ask it. And, and it doesn't mean that they're just committing the sin over and over, but they really don't want to be there. You, you know the feeling? I don't want to be there. I, I don't want to be that person anymore, God. I want you to change me. I want you to redeem me. Just transform me in the image and likeness of your son. And so they're really, 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 truly struggling. And I know they're looking for this compassionate, loving pastor. Sometimes, and I want to be that, but sometimes I don't hide it very well. Sometimes I'm like, man, I'm so glad you're struggling. And they look at you like, I'm going somewhere else, right? I mean, this, I, I need someone else. You don't have compassion. But the truth is I do have compassion. I don't love the fact that they're suffering. Nobody does. But if you're in this world, you must suffer for the sake of righteousness, you must struggle each and every day against sin. What the problem is, is when you're in your life, and some of us are here today, you said there's no struggle. There's no struggle. How you doing? I'm doing good. 
There doesn't seem to be anything wrong. The messages are preached. Week in and week out, we keep saying, hey, you need to be in the word. You need to be people of the book. You need to live for holiness. We need to share with others. We need to give. And laugh after laugh. You're, you look at the guy that's up here preaching, and you're thinking to yourself, why are you making such a big deal about this? This is exactly where these people have come. They come to the point where they think all of this sin is really not that big of a deal. What they do is they become accustomed to it, to the sinful state. And let me tell you this. If you come week in and week out to the house of God and the preaching of the word of God, eventually over everything, does very little to your heart in transforming you and having you call out for the mercies of God, you're in a very, very dangerous place. You're more than disillusioned. You have literally come to the point, according to the word of God, that that sin is deeply bound within your heart. Now, that's the bad news. Want some good news? Look, the reason that I wanted to be able to go through that is because I want you to understand that the people that lived during the power of Samson who needed a Savior is representative of every single person who needs the Savior of Jesus Christ. Every single one of us are in defiance of God. Every single one of us become disillusioned because of the progress of our sin. Every single one of us have great depth of our sin to the point that we don't even know that we need help. That's how far sin can take us. Now, let's look at that. So we looked at the people who needed to be saved by Samson were full of sin. We agree? But notice this. Here's the good news. But the God who sent Samson to save them was full of grace. He was full of grace. I love this. Notice two, two aspects of his grace. Grace to understanding people. He, he, he gave grace to undeserving people. Now, okay, we're going to go back to the cycle again. And you guys are like, quit with the cycle. It's in the text. I got to give it to you, all right? So here are the people. Here's how the cycle goes. People what? Sin. If you haven't got it by now, you're probably never going to get it. So I'll just say, all right, the people sin. Step two, God does what? Judges. Oh, man, you're, you're good. All right, you're good. All right, here, here's step three. The people ought to what? Call out to God for mercy. Did the people call out for mercy and grace to God? No. It's almost unbelievable, isn't it? But what's more amazing Catch this. What's more amazing is step four comes. Step four is that God, out of his grace and his mercy, raises up a savior to save the people from their bondage. Do, do, you, do you get that? Look, look, look what it says in verse three. It says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Now he goes on and he gives a bunch of instructions that we're going to get into next week, and we're going to unpack this whole Nazarite vow. But look at the very end part of there in three or in five. It says, It says, And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Please understand, it's going to take a little while for us to get it, but understand what's going on in the text. Here is a group of people who are full and saturated of sin. They're rebelling against God. They want nothing to do with him. They are in full defiance. They are fully delusioned. They are fully in depth in their sin and the eyeballs. They cannot even cry out to God. They don't even see the need of crying out to God. And yet, God helps them anyway. God begins to grant his grace anyway to them. Now, guys, this is completely different than the way that we normally think of salvation, isn't it? The way we normally think of salvation is we tell everybody, just cry out to God and have mercy on you. 
Cry out to God. And the Bible says, cry out to God, help mercy. He won't turn anybody away who cries out to him. And we understand that. But here's kind of how it works, and hopefully this point will, will be driven home. When we first tell our, uh, when we first begin to tell people, when they say, hey, how did you come to faith in Jesus Christ? It is littered with eyes, right? Here's what I did to be saved. Man, I, I was living a life of sin. Man, I, I just, my whole life was a wreck. I did things that you can't even imagine that somebody would ultimately do. And I, I began to realize that there was no, no hope in this, that this isn't the way that I should live. And I know that I needed to change, but I didn't know what to do. So I began to look, and I began to seek for God, and I began to look for him. And, and, and then somebody shared the gospel with me, and I began to read, and I began to study, and I began to hear, and I began to listen. I began to hear that I was a sinner, and I began to understand that I was a sinner. And I began to come and understand my need for repentance. And I began to repent for God, and I gave my whole life to Jesus. That's how I got saved. But usually that testimony is of somebody who is a new believer. I'm not trying to get on to anybody, but when you begin to understand the grace of God that brought you to that point, those eyes begin to dissolve, and they turn into he's. He. He convicted me. He showed me the error of my way. He began to draw me. He began to call me. He began to change my heart. He died while we were yet sinners. He died for us. He gave his life. He saved me by his grace. What we don't understand, if you think that the only time that God showed and granted grace and extended grace to you is when you cried out as a sinner, oh, what a sinner I am, you were missing half of his glorious grace. Before you ever came to the point to cry out for his grace, he was moving and you didn't even want him to move. You didn't even know he should be moving, but he did. That's the gracious God he is. I thank God for a God who graciously works on my behalf when I don't have the sense to call out to him. That's the kind of God that he is. The God who sent is a God who saves undeserving people, but not only that, he is a God who serves helpless people, helpless people. Now, this is, this is really interesting to me, or in, excuse me, in, in, in helpless or incapable, I have, I think I messed up my notes. Anyway, same thing, helpless, incapable, same thing. D- did you know how he goes about saving? I'll, I'll wrap it up right here. Did you know how he goes about saving these people? Very interesting. He decides to save them through a barren woman that nobody knows. That's, that's how he goes about saving the people. Very, very interesting. He is, should sound a little familiar, by the, by the way, but nobody even knows the name. He, he's the wife of Manoah. Uh, he's the mother of Samson. Nobody still knows his name. And it's interesting, but he's going to use this woman to bring about a savior, Samson. Now, something interesting I want to point out here. Samson is the only judge in the book that was chosen and uniquely set apart at birth to save the people. He's the only one. Everybody else, it was later in life. Hey, got a plan for you. Raise them up. God wants to save their people. So before he's even born, before he's even a flicker in mommy and daddy's life, guess what? He's setting him aside to be able to come and to be able to rescue them. But have you noticed something? Just even for a cursory understanding of the word of God, have you ever noticed how redundant this story is? (laughs) Of how many times that when the people need, the people of God need a savior throughout history, that God uses a barren woman to bring about the Savior? You ever, I mean, does anybody catch that? You have Abraham and Isaac that God gives a promise to him. He says, I will make you a great nation, and I'll bless those that bless you, and they will bless you. You know, we're talking Genesis 12. We're, we're back there. We, we get that. 
And, and the only problem is, is the father of all the nations is old. Okay, I mean, he's old. I mean, it's, it's in, in even when they say you're going to have a child, they begin to laugh. It's like the same thing that I did when I heard that my wife was pregnant. Go, <laughs> what? <laughs> what? <laughs> what? What's going on? You know, I'm, I'm too old, right? And so he's like physically too old for this to be able to happen. They need it. And so God goes and he opens up the womb of a woman who cannot impossibly have children, opens up the womb to have her be able to carry on the line. Okay, so we, we got that. We, we remember Hannah, another very influential time, a transition where God is going to transition the people over his lordship. And because of the sinful of the people, now they're going to go into a monarchy. And what happens, there's a woman by the name of Hannah who prays for a son. She calls out to him. She's barren. She can't conceive a child. And what ultimately happened, God opens up her womb, has a child, and now he comes on the scene to be able to rule and reign over and to be able to help that transition. Another savior from a barren woman. We look to the New Testament. We look to the book of Luke, and we get into Luke, and, 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 and there's Elizabeth, who is Mary's sister, right? And she's, she, she can't conceive of, uh, of, of a child. And, um, and so she's told uh, in her old age, hey, you're going to have a baby. And, and the father's like, whatever, he loses his speech, right? Can't speak because of this, because of, his, because of his ultimate unbelief. But yet is born the one who would foretell and the one who would prepare the way of the Savior. Now, listen, in every culture, I don't care where it is, and we, we've had folks here at our church as well, and some are even going through this, incredibly painful, incredibly painful when a woman finds out that she can't bear a child. Yeah? Really? really hard for them and sometimes it takes months and sometimes it even takes years for them to really kind of get through that mother's day is just disastrous for them it's just painful for them and they carry around this well as painful it is to us it was even far more painful for the people uh for for, for the israelites here's why all their lives they kept the hope in their hearts that one day would be born a savior unto them and every little girl who now wants to grow up and be whatever a little girl wants to grow up. Now, in those days, the little girl always thought back in their mind, maybe not stating it, but back in the mind, maybe I will be the mother of that Savior. Maybe I will be the one that, that, that is, is used in God's uh, transformation and his redemptive plan for mankind. So every woman who could not bear a child, guess what? Was riddled with shame and hopelessness couldn't be a part, had no chance of being able to be a part of God's redemptive plan. So then the question is, why does he keep using women like this, a woman who is in complete obscurity, we don't know her name, and it's impossible for her to be able to have a baby. Here's what's crazy. You think her, the wife felt bad in light of what I said, do you think she felt bad? But do you see what the angel did? The angel comes, instead of trying to soothe her cause in the beginning, what he ends up saying to her is this. He comes and points her finger, and he says, Hey, you have not conceived, a ch- or you have not conceived, nor have you bore a son. He's like, he's like tightening it down. He's like, come on, man, have some compassion. This is the most un- uncompassionate angel I've ever seen. Why is he driving home her helplessness? Because what they want to understand is that when, God, when it comes to salvation, God wants all of us to understand we have no part in it. There is a time that you and I have a part in God's redemptive plan, and that's to open our mouths and go and share the gospel with other people. But when it comes to the actual saving of people, he wants to show the absolute helplessness of people where they could do nothing. He didn't want her to brag, hey, this is what happened. No, all they could do is sit back and say the Savior that we have was a pure and utter miracle of God himself. That's the kind of God. Now, here's, here's what happens. Just as it would have been very tough, just follow me just for a second. 
Just as it would have been so tough for her to be able to hear those words, her, her, the, the fact that she, was, that she was helpless to really help herself or to help anybody else, that's a hard thing, isn't it? And that's exactly what happens when we hear the gospel. When the gospel comes and you truly hear it for the first time, what the gospel is saying is you cannot be good enough. You can't save yourself. You cannot honor God apart from self. You cannot be so good that your sins are ultimately wiped away. And it really strikes at our pride. And we sit there and say, well, certainly there's something we got to do. And God just keeps saying, you can do nothing. You could do nothing. You could do nothing. And until you come to the point to realize how helpless and useless you are in all of that in the point of your salvation, you cannot be saved. You cannot be born again. If I'm going to save, I'm going to do it by myself. So that's the kind of grace that we see in height of all of that sin, or the depth of all of that sin. Do you see the height of God's grace? Let me finish with this. This last week, as we're sitting there, you know, there's, there's a tendency that when, when strange things happen, in the case of my dad, where, where he's going in for his leg, and we don't know if he's coming out, Right? He goes in for his leg, and he ends up in the ICU on, 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 you know, trying to keep him alive on a, on a ventilator. And you're sitting there going, wow. And, and all of a sudden, have you ever noticed in times like that with you or your family or somebody close to you, that all of a sudden, all the other stuff in life just kind of, you, you don't even think about it. I mean, you, you're not thinking about putting a roof on your house. I don't know why you... I'm just throwing stuff out. All right. You're not thinking about getting into a new house. You're not thinking about, hey, man, what can I get? And how's, how's the stock market doing? All you're thinking of is the brevity of life. The brevity of life. So what, what I want you to do is, is understand, and not in any kind of fear, but my dad, when he walked in that hospital, he didn't think he was going to be on a ventilator. He j- it just doesn't work that way. You don't sit there and go, well, you know what? I've got you know, 232 days left. Um, and then this is how it's all going to go down, and then I'll be absent from the body and present for the Lord. I got it all planned out. You literally go in for a leg, and you don't know if you're going to come out because you can't breathe. And so what I'm just trying to show you in light of the gospel that has just been preached, and that is what was preached this morning is the gospel, is that there is great sin on every single one of us, and we have sinned in every way. It shows our great need for the grace and the mercy of God. But here's what's so wonderful so willing to give it. He's so willing to save. He's so willing to be able to help and to rescue his people. Call on him. Call on him. And if you call on him, know that the only reason you're calling is because he began to work in your heart and your life long before you ever chose to call out. All right, let's pray. Jesus, we come to you. We thank